Hello and welcome back to Two Peds in a Pod, uh, the paediatric medical education podcast uh, from Derby. Um, I'm host again this week, uh, Ian Lewins, one of the PEM consultants in Derby. Um, and it's my very great pleasure to be joined by a fellow podcaster this week. Um, and that's Pranay Budev, who's a paediatric orthopaedic surgeon uh, based in London. Uh, good afternoon. How are you? Hi, Ian. Thank you very much for uh, allowing me to join you. Um, so we wanted to have a chat uh, about the, the forthcoming paper that you've got published uh, following a, a tweet that I saw on Twitter, which got a huge amount of traction. But before we go on to that, um, just tell us a little bit about your podcasts and, and their sort of uh, influence on paediatrics at the moment. So I'm a paediatric orthopaedic surgeon, which is essentially someone that looks after children's bone joints and muscles. And obviously, it's a huge spectrum of a specialty because we look after everything from the hands to the shoulders, hips, knees and toes. Um, The reason for having my podcast was really after I did my fellowship out in Australia and also traveled uh, around the US and Canada uh, to some very special centers and meeting really some of the greats, the leaders and legends of my field. And it was an amazing experience to spend time with these people and learn about their journey into the specialty and what their opinions were with regards to research, education, and where they felt we would be going in the future. And therefore, I thought to start the PD Pods cast, uh, essentially by PD Pods, to uh, sit down with these people and discuss their, uh, these exact things and gain an insight into their careers. Um, and then also explore other um, aspects like addressing physician wellness, organizational psychology and performance optimization. Um, it's something we've had great traction with. And over the COVID pandemic, we did pivot and call it the Corona cast, which endeavored to sort of spread the knowledge about the impact of COVID-19 on the orthopedic community, trainees, medical students. Um, but now we're back to normal schedule of programming and uh, we're having an episode released on the first Sunday of each month and we can be found on all major podcast platforms like yourself. Fantastic. I've had a listen to a few and they, they, I can heartily recommend them to, 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 to our listeners as well. Um, so let's have a chat then about the, the reason I wanted you on. And this was a, a tweet that you put up about injuries during lockdown. Um, and it's forming the basis of a paper looking at paediatric trauma burden of the UK lockdown. Um, so you guys in orthopaedics, obviously elective stuff was largely cancelled during lockdown, but, but you weren't twiddling your thumbs at all, were you? Well, no, definitely not. And, you know, I felt that during the pandemic, everyone wanted to play their role. And obviously, you know, there was an unprecedented impact on the healthcare system with restructuring and redeployment of staff. Some of my uh, consultant colleagues and especially some of our trainees ended up working on the COVID wards. But as a paediatric orthopedic surgeon at my hospital, being the only one, it was felt I should utilize my skill set by essentially offering my services to the paediatric emergency department and essentially act up as a peds MSK consultant. And that's essentially what we did. If any patient presented to A&E over that time period, they were directed from the front door directly to see me in the fracture clinic. And essentially, I managed them from the beginning to the end of their treatment. So it was consultant delivered care um, for any child sustaining a musculoskeletal injury. And before we sort of go on to the sort of real meat of of this paper that you've written, um, did that sort of seeing a consultant straight away, did that sort of influence the management of these kids in in, 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 a, in a sort of obviously demonstrable way at all? 
I think definitely, you know, when uh, parents and children turn up to accident emergency, you normally seen by a nurse, then maybe by a junior doctor before you see, you know, a registrar consultant before being put in plaster, sent home and then brought back to a fracture clinic. And then you may be seen again by a registrar or consultant and managed according to that. Obviously, this case, you know, the senior decision making was uh, made at the initial presentation and we had uh, decided to modify our protocols to sort of minimize face to face contact uh, whilst upholding sort of best practice by utilizing more non-operative management methods out of the patients we saw. We found that uh, although we, we were able to avoid operations in quite a number of cases and certainly avoided the number of overall appointments and attendances to the hospital uh, that they would have typically had, which obviously helped reducing the footfall in the healthcare system generally. And I guess looking forward, is there potentially a business case for lots of departments to sort of say, actually, when all of this has died down, could this be an alternative way forward to managing these children? So there have definitely been some uh, demonstrable ways that we've already changed our practice. Uh, A lot of hospitals have something called a virtual fracture clinic where uh, the emergency department will send a pile of their notes for review by a senior orthopaedic surgeon who then can make a decision on management or if they need to be seen face to face. So that is something that we adopt in our department and have continued to adopt in our department since the COVID pandemic. Another big change is actually simple things like the change in the use of uh, plaster that we use. So most people will know there's a big heavy uh, plaster of Paris, which is the white heavy plaster that you tend to put on in accident emergency to allow for swelling. And then we normally convert it to the lightweight, colourful plasters that most people know and love. The problem with this is you have to use a plaster saw to remove them. And that was considered an aerosol generating procedure over the COVID time. So we've managed to get hold of something called soft cast, which is something very similar, but can actually be unwrapped instead of having to use a plaster saw. And over a lockdown period, we actually encouraged patients to remove it themselves. And we produced a couple of videos uh, that were sent out to patients on YouTube, and they were able to watch these and take off their plaster themselves again at the height of the pandemic, really reducing the footfall in the hospital. Really, that's that's really interesting. And you say it, it, the, the pandemic has, has created sort of novel ways for, for people to do things that are potentially better going forward. Um so the, the tweet that I saw was featured uh, a whiteboard with sort of a, a tally chart, a scoreboard on it um, with different sorts of injuries. How did that come about? Whose idea was that? So uh, as I was seeing every single child, is myself and my clinical nurse specialist who were seeing every child coming in uh, during sort of working hours or managing them once they'd gone home, uh, I started to notice that we'd expect a significant drop in the number of injuries we saw in children over the lockdown periods because they're not outdoors tripping up or falling over. And there's certainly no team sports where we tend to see quite a lot of injuries from football, rugby, uh, etc. But this wasn't the case. We were still seeing a huge number coming through and more so from trampolines. Now, anyone who knows about uh, paediatric orthopedic surgeons and trampolines, it is a complete bugbear of ours and a cause of many sleepless nights during our training and fellowships. So um, we decided to create a whiteboard that we took off a wall in another part of the hospital and essentially document uh, the mechanisms of injuries that we were seeing. And then as we went along, we could see that uh, we started changing it. So people who had operations had separate red lines just to highlight. And every time a patient walked into the room, we would say, OK, how did you do this? And the parents would look across at the board, shake their head in disgust and go, 
time to get rid of that trampoline. And it was only <laughs> after a period of time that we then thought, let's compare this to the same time period from the previous year, because that will really give us an insight into the if the trauma burden of the pandemic in a paediatric population. So when you looked at sort of total number of, of if you like, orthopaedic attendances between those two time periods, were they similar or are you seeing fewer injuries? So mimicking a couple of other studies done in the US, we actually saw a 30% drop in the number of pediatric um, sort of trauma presentations. And this was largely attributed to the reduction in trips uh, from being outdoors, from the involvement in team sports, and also from high energy injury trauma like road traffic accidents, etc. Yes, but you noticed that trampolines suddenly shot up. Uh, by 400% compared to the previous year. So, um, you know, in 2019, we saw a total of 300, uh, sorry, in 2019, we saw a total of 441 patients and 25 of them had trampolining injuries of which only seven needed surgery. This year we had 306 patients, but 67 um, trampoline injuries, of which 28% of them required surgery. So quite a significant jump. And obviously, you know, with a family confinement, uh, remote working and obviously school closure, it really meant uh, people really went out and bought home trampolines and let their kids bounce around in the garden. The main problem with trampoline use is not that they are completely unsafe because they have safety nets, although that can um, cause sort of riskier behaviour. But it's normally those who are younger than the age of six because they lack the understanding and uh, sort of spatial awareness. Those who are not supervised by a parent and therefore taking more riskier behavior. But most importantly, those who are having concomitant use with children of different sizes and ages. Yeah, so uh, absolutely. And is this sort of when you were sort of saying, okay, it's a trampolining injury, we were you then delving into, you know, who was on the trampoline, were you supervising, that sort of thing? Was that something that you were specifically asking about at the time? Yeah, that was something we specifically asked from the very conception of this sort of uh, project. And actually, those who we hadn't spoken to, we called them up as part of our follow up to check. And almost certainly 80% of the time, these children were on the trampoline with someone else, sometimes even with a parent who is significantly larger than them. Right. Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, and and as owner of a trampoline, I'm shamed to admit uh, uh, that this is ringing lots of alarm bells. Um, were the sorts of injuries that you were seeing more severe or was it just a huge increase in the number? It was an increase in number, but there were some um, atypical injuries we saw. So um, most of your audience will know what a supracondylar fracture is, which is a fracture around the elbow, which usually requires uh, emergent surgery and can have long term consequences. We actually that tends to happen in a group from the age of around four till seven. We actually had older teenagers coming in with those. We even had a 13 year old girl that we mentioned in our publication that came in with quite an atypical fracture. But then there are also uh, fractures that are almost pathognomonic of trampoline injuries, and that usually are. Uh, fractures in the proximal tibia the top part of the shin in children under six and we actually had a resurgence of those as well so having sort of collected this data and, and looked at it um you've got some suggested guidelines that you've, you've sort of published that i can see which is looking about sort of age uh, multiple people using it supervision um but you, you also comment on three other things um 
one's about doing somersaults um one's about placing it near trees or hard structures um and the other's about making sure that the net enclosures and padding are fitted appropriately is that something that, that you'd sort of discovered as you went along now, to be honest, this is actually um, typical guidance that's sold in the uh, with along the trampoline with the sort of safety thing. It's just something that people don't really pick up on. I think it's pretty common sense to not put it near trees and to ensure that it's well maintained. And to be honest, we know that home trampolines have a significantly more uh, traumatic injury than those sustained in trampoline parks. And that's really to do with the design of them and the forced transmission of them and the fact that they are supervised somewhat. But yeah, these are all um, standard sort of public safety announcements that have been endorsed by sort of injury prevention societies around the world. Yeah. Um, And it's interesting that you mentioned sort of trampoline parks because certainly where we are, we we opened a couple of trampoline parks recently. um, And all of us sort of groaned in the emergency department because we thought we're going to see a sudden huge influx of of injuries from these places. But actually, that's just not occurred. And as you say, most of these seem to be occurring in people's houses. Yeah, exactly. And, um, you know, despite that being the case, you know, my wife calls me the trampoline Grinch and I'll move on to uh, trampoline parks once I've tackled home trampoline <laughs> safety. Uh, yeah, yes, I, I like that. Um other categories that you you sort of saw my favorite was siblings what what did you mean by that so siblings yes so uh, we did find a number of sibling injuries uh, especially you know they were fighting each other tripping each other over and kids will always find a way of injuring each other and we thought it'd be quite humorous to make it as their own category uh, in that chart the main reason for making it humorous was to really draw attention to it and highlight the importance of the other mechanisms that were really causing problematic injuries um, and this the tweet and the, the subsequent uh, journal article, as you say, got a huge amount of, of traction on social media and national media as well. Um, why do you think that was? I think, firstly, people are at home uh, using uh, Twitter and social media more. Uh, it did have a huge amount of attention, I think, it, because it probably drew alert to this. Um, I actually had some colleagues from Australia, the US and other countries uh, do something very similar. So it started creating this flair of uh, collaborative type research. And, you know, I just think that people wanted to know about it. People were looking for something to do. And uh, it was my job as a sort of medical professional to highlight uh, the concerns that I had that people would be facing over the pandemic. And another one of those was potential non increase in non-accidental injury in children, although uh, that hasn't actually uh, seemed to come to much when it's been looked at from a head statistics point of view. And certainly thinking of other sort of injuries, we we locally saw a lot of a significant increase in burns, um, which I think was something that was was sort of reproduced throughout the country. Um, and we sort of subsequently created a video to, to explain to parents that, that this was something they were seeing and what to do. Um, in terms of sort of public health information, have you been able to do anything at the moment with the, the data and your findings? We've uh, had some attention from the Injury Prevention Society, but not much else uh, besides that. I mean, you know, I think over time there there will be more uh, sort of policy drawn in with regards to safety on trampolines. And I think contributing to the body of evidence that's been produced from around the world would only help uh, our sort of struggle with this. Um, I guess the counter argument to this is, well, 
it's not the counter argument, but the counter argument maybe to having trampolines is, well, it's relatively inexpensive. And whilst we're now coming into our second lockdown and we can't do this, that and the other outside, if I don't have my trampoline, then my kids aren't going to get any exercise. I completely agree. And I think, you know, I'm not against the use of home trampolines. I'm just uh, trying to reinforce the safety aspects that surround sensible use of trampolines, uh, which are, as I said, not allowing children under the age of six uh, on them, parental supervision and also not allowing concomitant use of them. Um, you know, I, I think home exercise and the, the sort of development of how people get involved in Joe Wicks was very important in engaging our young people with home exercise. These are the sort of platforms which are going to be developed and probably more um, popular as we almost, you know, as we see gym memberships uh, sort of plummet down. Yeah. So now, obviously, we're sort of mid-November and we're now into our second national lockdown. Are you guys back in ED and having a look at this data or have things changed this time round? I think things have definitely changed this time round and that's very much so due to the weather. Um, I think over the first lockdown period, we were almost lucky to have such good weather. I think this uh, lockdown period with uh, it becoming winter, getting darker earlier, we're not seeing as much. And especially with schools being open, children are not in the household and parents are able to get on with remote working somewhat undisturbed. Yeah. And are you guys going to be recollecting this data, do you think, or maybe having another look in the future? So I think we'll be having a look at it in the future just to check up and see if there has been a change. Although at first glance, because we have a sort of uh, trauma database, there has been no significant increase whatsoever. Uh, Right now, we're really busy tackling the massive backlog that we have from having uh, stopped elective services over the lockdown period. Yeah, as you say, you guys have now got this enormous trying to work as normally as possible uh, backlog. I mean, just thinking about that, have you got any top tips for us in ED to try and help you guys in orthopaedics working forward? I think uh, we found a lot of patients did not attend with some concerns because they did not want to turn up to the hospital emergency department. Um, But some people were also unable to attend the general practitioner. And it's uh, even though that is getting better, uh, we are finding a lot of patients now turning up, especially to my clinic, with some delayed diagnosis of things like developmental dysplasia of the hip. Um, perthase disease, which is quite significant, slip mm. femoral epiphyses. These are all things that end up requiring timely, uh, almost time critical management from an orthopedic point of view. Uh, we're very happy to obviously see anyone that is concerned of, but it's normally the ones that have been grumbling on for two to three months, may have had two or three attendances to the accident emergency department where nothing really has seemed uh, particularly wrong. I feel like those are the ones Uh, who should be referred. And we have had a couple of examples with uh, delayed diagnosis of um, uh, sarcomas and tumours due to this. Right. And obviously this is, you know, this is always a big worry amongst um, paediatricians of delayed presentation of children staying at home when they they should be seen by us. And and certainly locally, and I think nationally, our our attendances were down about 50% during the first lockdown, which doesn't so far seem to be sort of uh, re- reproducing itself in in the second lockdown um but i guess this is something that y- you guys and as well as ourselves will be keeping a very close eye on uh just to make sure we're not missing these things 
And I also feel we now know what we can do when this lockdown has come into force. We understand what testing is available for staff and for patients. So my patients undergo COVID swabbing three days before they have an operation. There is certainly no way we are going to stop elective operating again. We're already struggling as it is. And there have been multiple studies to show that children are at a very low risk of COVID-19 with no real proven transmission, which is why I believe they've kept schools open. And therefore, I feel we will not stop operating this time. And we're also aware what needs to be done and who to highlight needs to be seen more urgently. And that involves a sort of continuous process of prioritising care and stratifying our surgical waiting list and referrals that we receive. Yeah. Final thought then, just sort of thinking about our colleagues, with you, your, your sort of junior colleagues being redeployed, do you think that training has particularly suffered for, for, for your junior colleagues during the, the, this period of time? Almost certainly. I mean, stopping elective services in orthopaedics is is the vast majority of what training involves. It's it's not the surgery that, you know, you can train anyone to be a surgeon, but it's actually the decision making that's really important. You learn that from outpatient clinics. So the fact that our trainees had to stop their outpatient clinics, but not only that, be redeployed to medical wards to utilize a set of skills that they may or may not have had has had a significant impact on them, you know, both from a professional point of view, but also from a personal and psychological point of view. So uh, we have continued and I continue throughout the pandemic to try and offer my services and uh, participate in doing regular lectures and webinars and my podcast as well obviously helping with that now that we're back up and running we're um we're really pushing for people to attend as much as possible to get that experience and i think the program directors of training from around the country especially in orthopedics have made it very clear that we may need to extend um the period of training to ensure that people are up to scratch and prepared to be a consultant once they once they complete it yeah so if people want to go and have a read of, of the article, where, where can they read it and where, where is it likely to be published in the future? So uh, it's currently under revision for the Bone and Joint Journal, which is the UK's biggest uh, orthopaedic journal. But it will be in the open access journal, which is called Bone and Joint Open, hoping that everyone can have a read of it. Uh, we'll probably do an episode on it ourselves on the PD podcast. And you can also go and listen to the interview I gave uh, for the BBC Radio 4 show, More or Less, and it was released on the 5th of May of this year. And it's a very nicely summarised and uh, quite entertaining uh, five-minute interview where we discussed our initial findings. Perfect. Um, Prana, so thank you so much for joining us today. It's, it's been really interesting and it's, it's a fascinating uh, article that I think has some key learning points for all of us. Perfect. Thank you very much, Ian, for your time and thank you for giving me this opportunity to speak to you.